Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Have you heard of the Restoration Movement? In today's interview, Eric Miller recounts the history of Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell as they initiated the movement to get back to the Bible over against denominational divisions back in the 19th century. He explains the differences between the Disciples of Christ, the a cappella Churches of Christ, and the Independent Christian Churches. He also explores why his own group, the Independent Christian Churches, is growing today. Here now is episode 439, The Stone-Campbell Restoration Movement, with Eric Miller. Welcome, Eric Miller, to Restitutio. So glad to have you today with me. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, We've known each other a little bit here and there online. I got to see you in the flesh at the UCA conference back in October. We're really occupying different worlds, and and I'm just kind of fascinated by your world, the world of the Restoration Movement, Churches of Christ, and what you're up to right now. So I thought we'd start with a little bit of background on your own history and just ask you the question, what was your spiritual journey like growing up? I grew up in the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement in one of our churches in Illinois. Um... Basically, the movement today has been divided into three branches. We have the independent Christian churches and churches of Christ, the a cappella churches of Christ, which traditionally has been the branch that doesn't use instruments, uh-huh. and then the disciples of Christ, which is the more mainline progressive of the three traditions. And I grew up in the first one, the independent Christian churches and churches of Christ. Um, that's actually the tradition that I'm in right now, the church that I go to. And I studied at one of our Bible colleges for, uh, two years. So this is a history that runs through my veins. Uh, I I love the restoration movement. Um, I love our history and, uh, it's been a pleasure of mine to be able to continue to minister in one of our churches. Cool. Uh, Growing up for you, was there a decisive moment where you turned your life over to Christ or were you just raised in a way that you continued in the path your parents laid out for you? That's an excellent question. I was raised in a Christian home and my parents were very dedicated believers. They took it very seriously. So as far back as I can remember, I believed in God. I believed that Jesus was the son of God. I believed the Bible was the word of God. And from kindergarten on, I wanted to be a preacher. That's what I wanted to do. Wow. So I've always loved the Lord. <laughs> uh, I've always wanted to tell people about him. And then I finally gave my life formally to Christ in Christian baptism when I was 11 years old. Okay. Um, so I can never remember a time when I, you know, I was kind of outside of communion with uh, Christ. But yes, I gave my life to Christ in baptism when I was 11. Wow. I just so rarely meet somebody like you who grew up with the faith and is passionate as an adult. I guess that's kind of a cliche, but like so often people who have suffered and been through a lot of difficulty because of sin, that when they come to Christ, they're the passionate ones. But you are such a powerful example of, I would say, a better way of (laughs) uh, training up a child in the way and then having him not depart from it when he is older, right? Well, I'm very thankful for the the upbringing that my parents you know, raised us in. 
they weren't perfect parents. I wasn't a perfect child. But what I do know is that the faith that they had when we were in church was the same faith that they had when we were at home. So okay. I saw that it was important. Um, I knew that it was, I wanted it to be important to my own life. And not that I, you know, we all take twists and turns and, you know, maybe go some places where we shouldn't go. Um, but the Lord has had his hand on my life uh, since I was a child. And uh, yeah, I'm very thankful for that. Very cool. Very cool. Let's hear a little bit about what you're doing right now. How old are you? And, and you're in school and you're studying. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'll be 27 in a few months. Okay. <laughs> and uh, right now I am in uh, my last semester, Lord willing, of Bible college. I'm studying biblical studies at a Christian uh, Bible college here in Cincinnati, Ohio. And then I serve at a, a Christian church, uh, a restoration movement church that is Spanish speaking. So the focus of my ministry is a Spanish to Spanish speaking people. And uh, I lead worship and I do Bible studies. And for the first couple of years I was at the church, I was one of the preachers. Uh, we don't um, have just one main like a uh, principal pastor, uh, but the responsibility is shared among the men in the congregation to do the preaching and teaching. Uh -huh. And so that's basically how I spend my time. And the hope is to continue on and do some sort of Spanish speaking ministry, either here in the States or possibly in Mexico. I see. And did you say this is your last semester? Yes. Oh, wow. So uh, you're going to have to figure that out very soon, huh? <laughs> Don't remind me. Yes, yes. I'm thinking about <laughs> Sorry. that. I'm thinking about, about moving. I'm thinking about a lot of things that are coming up very soon. So, yeah. So today, we're, our focus is primarily on the Stone-Campbell movement and the restoration movement and restorationism. To start, let's let's hear just like a little bit of a brief history. What what is Stone Campbell? It sounds like a, a kind of soup. You know, like what are we talking about here? <laughs> yeah. So the name Stone Campbell comes from the what we call the leading lights of our movement, the two main progenitors of our movement, Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone. And uh, the Stone Campbell movement it was a 19th century back to the Bible restoration movement, which is why those of us on the inside just simply call it that, the restoration movement. And um, for a little bit of a history, we can start with what was called the Cane Ridge Revival. There are lots of different ways you can start talking about the restoration movement history. But I like to focus here in particular to our conversation because it starts with Barton Stone, who was the non-Trinitarian half of that Stone Campbell movement. And the Cane Ridge Revival was basically the largest and most uh, well-known uh, camp meetings of the Second Great Awakening, where thousands and thousands of people got together to hear preaching, to repent of sins, to give their life back over to the Lord. In a time where Christianity in the United States had really kind of grown cold as it spread out among the frontier. And uh, one of the individuals who was in attendance at that Cane Ridge Revival was Barton Stone a Presbyterian minister. Now, Barton Stone was a very interesting character. He was born in the United States. And uh, as he kind of grew up in the Presbyterian church and was getting ready for ordination, he was struggling with a lot of doubts. Mm -hmm. Not doubts so much, you know, does God exist? Is the Bible true? But about the doctrines of his church, particularly the Calvinism uh, that he grew up with. Right. And uh, he even told his friends uh, before his ordination I don't think this is going to work out. I don't think they're going to ordain me. And so when they asked one of the ordination questions, which was basically, do you believe in the Westminster Confession of Faith? He gave a very interesting answer. He said, yes, 
insofar as I see it consistent with the Bible. <laughs> Very and good. That would that would basically be his framework for understanding everything throughout the rest of his life. Yes, insofar as it is consistent with the Bible. Now, if he had tried that in one of the churches, let's say on the East Coast, one of the Presbyterian churches, uh, they probably would not have ordained them. But because they were a little more lax on the frontier, they said, okay, you're fine, whatever. <laughs> and, they, and they allowed him to join the Presbyterian communion. Uh, but he still had those doubts about Calvinism, some questions about the atonement. And when he went to the Cambridge Revival, he was really impressed by the unity that he saw, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians all coming together, singing the same hymns, reading from the same Bible. Mm. And he and a number of other Presbyterian ministers uh, left from that revival changed. Yeah. Now that change was good for them, but it started to concern some of their Presbyterian brethren. And one of the ministers was brought up on charges by the Synod of, of Kentucky. And when Stone and the other ministers basically came to his defense, they ended up withdrawing from the Presbyterian Synod that they had been uh, members in and uh, forming something called the Springfield Presbytery. It was pretty short-lived. It only lasted for about three years as they kind of had desire to, and this is one of the more common or popular quotes in our movement, to sink into union with the body of Christ at large. So they ended up dissolving their own presbytery because they didn't want it to become its own sort of denomination that would cause more division on the American landscape. Now, of those yeah. people who signed the uh, Springfield Presbytery, two of them went back to Presbyterianism, two joined the Shakers, and then you had Daniel Puravance and Barton Stone who would continue on with the Restoration Movement. Let me pause you there. I, I remember reading... Barton Stone's autobiography uh -huh. about his ordination. Mm. And specifically when the question of the Trinity came up, he expressed some concerns to the leadership or whoever it was that was going to ask him the question. He's like, you know, I'm not really sure about this one. And the guy's just like, ah, don't worry about it. Nobody really understands it. Yeah. <laughs> and somehow he like managed to just skate through without having to definitively affirm the Trinity which I think he was profoundly suspicious of because it wasn't clearly spelled out in the Bible. Right, right. And at the very beginning of, of Stone's ministry, he didn't so much, and you put it very well, he didn't so much uh, question the veracity of the doctrine of the Trinity, but he had a lot of problems with the philosophical speculations, the extra biblical Trinitarian language, and the fact that the common person, remember he's preaching on the frontier. These are, right. these are simple people. They're not reading the Westminster Confession of Faith. You know, they're not wrestling with, you know, what Ed Calvin or Luther or the other reformed you know, doctors teach about the doctrine of the Trinity. And so for him, for a person to have to assent to this beyond what they could see in the Bible, that's what started to put those seeds of doubt in his mind. And then through continued research and study, he clearly uh, picked up on uh, some of the things that Isaac Watts taught about the preexistence of Christ, some things that Samuel Clark uh, in England was teaching about um, subordinationism. He came to believe that the doctrine of the Trinity was not just wrong insofar as the speculation and the language, but the very essence of the doctrine itself was not found in Scripture. 
Okay, and we'll probably come back to that anyhow. Yeah. Uh, so, so please continue. So he had this last will and testament, very famous document where he dissolved uh, the church and really initiated this movement towards <laughs> ecumenism, so that Christians would begin taking seriously, at least in the frontier in America, the high priestly prayer of our Lord in John 17, that we would be one even as he is one with the Father. And this was something that was really driving Stone, this heart for unity. What happened next? Yeah, so around this same time, a lot of similar movements were popping up. You had uh, the Kelly group that had left the Methodist church. You have Alexander and Thomas Campbell, who are also coming out of uh, Presbyterianism. You have Elias Smith and Abner Jones, who are coming out of the Baptist church and uh, saying very similar things to the Stone group. And in particular, that uh, the Campbell group, who published the Declaration Address in 1809, which is basically their version of the Last Will and Testament, ended up meeting with the Stone group later on around 1831. And then Closer to the time that the last one testament of the Springfield Presbytery was written, uh, Stone met up with Elias Smith and Abner Jones, who would continue to be friends of his throughout their ministries. And in particular, with that Elias Smith and Abner Jones group that came up, it was called the Christian Connection. And mm-hmm. this was significant because Smith and Jones also rejected the Trinity. They approached it very differently than uh, Barton Stone did. Uh, which is why they never quite got on board with Alexander Campbell. So some of the Christian Connection group followed Stone in the merger with Campbell in 1831. And that kind of formed that early nexus of non-Trinitarians in the early Restoration movement. Uh, And then some of the, the rest of the Christian Connection folks joined with the Boston Unitarians. And then on the other side of the movement, on the Campbell uh, side, you had some people who joined with uh, Stone and then other people who didn't because of his views on the Trinity and the atonement and so forth. But then again, around 1831, you have the Stone and Campbell movements that have merged. Some who are a little bit more traditional Presbyterian in terms of their views on the Godhead and then the Stone group that uh, is tolerant but has dissented from this more orthodox traditional view. Now, uh, just to be clear, these people that were doubting the Trinity in the first half of the 1800s associated with Stone, they're not doubting the Trinity because they're just like theological liberals, right? They're, Mm -hmm. They're still holding to the authority of Scripture, right? Oh, 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 absolutely. Okay. For any number of these individuals, the denial of the Trinity being taught in the Bible goes back to their fundamental belief that nothing should be inculcated upon a person for Christian fellowship apart from those things that can be found in Scripture. And in fact, I like this um, quote from uh, David Purvance. He, he was responding to the two gentlemen who had signed the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery only to later go back to the Presbyterian church in no small part because of what they felt like was wrong in the denial of the Trinity. And uh, uh, David Provence, he said this, he said, do we not all believe that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, that there's no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved, that we must believe in the Lord Jesus and receive his spirit. 
uh, the, and the Holy Spirit and repent of our sins, or that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And he goes on to say, shall we then reject from fellowship on account of things not expressly revealed and concerning which honest souls may differ in opinion? So they, they were ready to accept people who believed in the doctrine of the Trinity insofar as they were not going to make that a test of fellowship, that they were going to try to, uh, you know, make people who like Pervance, like Stone, like Jones, like David Millard and so many others that around that time who were just genuine Christians saying this, and we don't find it in the Bible, make them believe that against their conscience. Uh, but this had nothing to do with theological liberalism. It was, if anything, it's just a biblical literalism. We're going to follow the Bible and the Bible alone. Mm-hmm. And once the Stone and Campbell movements combined, and we got the Stone-Campbell movement, or what we often just call the Restoration Movement, yeah. uh, what, what happened next? Yeah, so um, the movement exploded. <laughs> uh, it really is quite amazing. I mean, this message of Christian restoration and primitivism and getting back to the Bible, it, it just it went off like a wildfire. People were so burned over by the uh, Christian denominations that were, you know, dividing ever the more on the American scene. There was something about the simplicity of this message where the Bible speaks, we speak, where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Simple belief in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Alexander Campbell would become, without a doubt, by far, the most prominent and uh, influential theological voice in the movement. He published a series of uh, journals, the Millennial Harbinger, uh, up until his death. And basically, they went throughout the frontier spreading this message. Churches were planted. People were saved. They drew people from the Baptists, from the Methodists, from the Presbyterians, from the the Anabaptists, really up until the present day where... um, many consider the independent Christian churches, which is the movement that I come from, one of the fastest growing uh, traditions in the United States. Very good. So this was just really resonating with people in a powerful way. Why do you think that was? Why do you think people were so drawn to this message? I mean, if I share my, you know, as, as a restorationist myself, yeah. if I share my mindset with others, I'm often met with criticism. They're like, oh, that's naive. Oh, that's so dumb. What year are you going to go back to? You're going to go back to the year 120, you know, and uh, they'll say, well, the world's too different. You know, this, I'm sure you've heard a lot of these same Absolutely. objections. Mm-hmm. Uh, why was it so attractive back then? Do you, do you have any insight into that? Yeah, there's something about that frontier spirit that really, I think, attracted people to this idea that we can pursue unity. We can take our faith into our own hands and make something better than what we have in contrast to the Calvinistic, deterministic, fatalistic theology that so many people were familiar with. So against that backdrop, that American spirit of kind of free will and freedom and getting outside of the traditional denominational structures, I think really appealed to people who were looking for something different. And again, you have to understand, I think many of us think about you know, the United States being a Christian nation and everybody just believed in God and everybody went to church. But this was just not the case. I mean, most people, yes, were nominally Christian, but they were just that. They were nominally Christian. They didn't know what they believed. They didn't take their faith particularly seriously. Uh, and so when, you, you know, you get a new preacher who comes in and saying, listen, we're, we're getting rid of 
the denominational titles, the clerical titles. We want to pursue the priesthood of all believers. We want to get back to the Bible. We want to get back to, you know, what the early Christians said that the faith was. We're going to get rid of these creeds that are confusing to you and you don't know anyways, and just, you know, take the New <laughs> Testament as our creed. People were like, you know what? That's something I can get on board with. Yeah, it probably sounded empowering. Oh, absolutely. I don't just have to take the word of some dead ancestor of this faith. You know, I, I can actually read the Bible with my own eyes, and I can join in the project of restoration. I can join in the discovery of the contrast between what the scriptures say and what the traditions that we've all, you know, kind of accepted have taught us. I think that must have been an exciting opportunity for a lot of people. Absolutely. And and uh, that's an actually act, an excellent point. And some of the most, uh, I think of Raccoon John Smith, who was one of the most um, prominent early frontier evangelists in the restoration movement, who was basically illiterate. Uh, you know, he was not going to be one of those intellectual writers like... Um, Alexander Campbell, or even Barton Stone for that matter. But oh my goodness, he is well known in our movement for being one of the greatest evangelists of that first generation, because it didn't take a lot of that theological understanding. They didn't have to go to seminary. They didn't have to assent to all these particular you know, theological strictures. They could just take the Bible in hand and go out and preach. Uh, and by empowering the little man, you could say, or the lay person, because they didn't have that big uh, laity clergy distinction, it allowed the movement to grow rapidly. Whereas if you have to have an ordained minister and he's got to check people out and those kinds of things, that kind of church bureaucracy, um, it's going to grow much slower. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what happened next after the movements combined and it blew up? Uh, how did the Civil War come into play? In the yeah. 1860s. So very few Christian denominations made it through the Civil War intact. <laughs> Most of the denominations divided, and uh, this was no different. Unfortunately for the Restoration Movement, there was already tension and difference between the Northern churches and the Southern churches, just culturally speaking. It was two very different worlds. The Civil War exacerbated some of those tensions along various theological lines. The most well-known is instrument mental music. Um, so for those who are not familiar with the restoration movement, as I mentioned before, two branches of our movement, one is called the Christian churches and churches of Christ, and the other is simply called the churches of Christ. The most uh, notable difference between the two is that most churches of Christ do not use musical instruments at all in their services. And this became a flashpoint of controversy among our churches based essentially on a hermeneutical difference. Those who said that we should not use musical instruments uh, in service were working with a, a hermeneutic that said, anything that is not expressly permitted in the Bible is prohibited, is not to be introduced into the worship of the church. Those on the other side said, well, it's a question of if it's not expressly prohibited, uh, in the Bible, then a person may or may not use it. So they don't have to use instruments if they don't want to, but they may. This was one of the differences. Another difference along those same lines were things like missionary societies were starting to pop up. People were asking, well, where do you get in the Bible the authority for a missionary society that functions 
separately or autonomously from the local church. There were questions about slavery, of course. You also had kind of the wealthier, more urban congregations in the North that were very culturally different than the more rural and poor congregations in the South. And ultimately, this led to a divide between the Churches of Christ and uh, the disciples uh, in 1906. After that, from the disciples group, uh, we would see the last major divide in which the more theologically conservative of the disciples, those who were not so sure about maybe some of the ecumenism, not so sure about women ministers, women preachers, came out of the disciples slowly, gradually, to form what would be later known as the Christian churches. And then the disciples now would be kind of the more mainline progressive denomination. So that's kind of how we got to where we are today. That's what the landscape is of the um, restoration movement. There are some smaller divisions, uh, the International Churches of Christ, which came out of the uh, acapella churches, and then the International Christian Churches, which came out of the, the uh, International Churches of Christ. But generally speaking, those are the three main divisions, the Christian churches, the acapella churches of Christ, and then the mainline disciples of Christ. All right. I, I, I'm sorry to ask you a, a more about this, but uh, it's, yeah, it's a little confusing to me to keep this straight. And you've said these a, a few times, so I'm sorry to have you repeat it again. But uh, So the Christian churches, yeah. what is that? That's the yeah. music. They use musical instruments. Correct. Yes. Okay. And so one of the difficulties here too, unfortunately, is that we all use about the same names. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's churches, churches of that's Christ, it's difficult. disciples of Christ. It is difficult to keep it straight. Yeah. Okay. So disciples of Christ. How are they different than the Christian churches? So today they are different in the fact that you have ordained women ministers, and there are many of the traditions that are considered open and affirming. So they would allow married gay couples, homosexual couples into the oh, community. Oh, wow. Yes. So they've gone very much mainline progressive, like the United Churches of Christ, for example. Okay. So the United Churches of Christ, I'm familiar with them. So disciples of Christ are similar to that? They, they are similar. Uh, the only difference is that because there is this kind of congregational autonomy, and I want to be fair here, you will find congregations that are more conservative. But generally okay. speaking, they are known for some of the things that we would traditionally consider like mainline and progressive. Okay. And do they hold to like an inspiration of scripture or are they loose on that? Uh, <laughs> um, well, yes. I, I don't know anyone who would say that scripture is not inspired, but what that means is going to differ greatly based on the church and how that plays the practical role in the life of the individual church is going to change. So there may be a person who thinks that the scripture is inspired, but they think that it's inspiring, <laughs> you know, right, right, right. They don't, yeah. they don't view it as like the literal word of God or something like that. Okay. All right. And then the third one was you had the Christian churches, the disciples of Christ, and then the acapella churches of Christ, which is tends to be what I think most people are most familiar with. Um, the acapella churches are the most conservative of the three branches. Um, there are some who use instruments, but they are generally characterized by their non-use of instruments. Um, and then among themselves, they have all kinds of uh, subdivisions 
based on um, whether a group has missionary societies or supports, you know, parachurch organizations and all kinds of other little things. Okay. You said your group is the Independent Churches of Christ. The, yes, the, the Independent Christian Churches and Churches of Christ, yep. Okay, and how is that different? So we differ from the Churches of Christ in the fact that uh, we do use musical instruments and we have a lot of parachurch organizations. So we don't see either of those things as forbidden in scriptures. And we differ from the Disciples of Christ in that we're not a denomination, perhaps in the same way that they are. Our churches are totally autonomous and we tend to be very much more conservative. You're not going to find many female ministers. I'm not making a position on that. That's just the reality of our churches. There's a strong belief in the inspiration, authority, reliability of scripture. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, the group Independent Christian Churches and Churches yes. of Christ is different than uh, Christian churches? That no, that that would be the same thing. That would be another way of saying it. The Christian churches. Oh, okay. Yes. All right. Thanks. That's where I was getting confused. Okay. <laughs> Man. Uh, so that th- thank you so much for taking that little uh, segue to help me uh, catch up here on on these differences. I don't think other groups uh, have controversies over these two issues, missionary organizations or any parachurch organization. And then the other being musical instruments. You know, it does strike those of us who are, you know, don't don't share that history as kind of unique that this is this is what the churches of Christ and you know these other varieties have been so focused on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Surprising, and I think it strikes a lot of people as silly. I think some of us who are in the movement kind of see it as silly as well, you know, debating about whether or not the church can have an orphan home <laughs> in Latin America if it's you know not directly underneath the eldership of the congregation. But there, again, this was about a desire to be faithful to the scriptures, but it can also show how you can miss the forest for the trees. We really got wrapped around this axle of, if the Bible does not explicitly say you're allowed to do this, what does that mean? Is it a yes or is it a no? And just depending on how you answered that question, really contributed to splitting the movement right down the middle. Okay, cool. And this this group that you're a part of, the uh, independent... You can just call it the Christian churches if that's easier. <laughs> the Christian churches. Okay, cool. You said that this is growing a lot? Oh, yeah, yeah. So... Um, are they all growing, or, ju- or are the acapella ones and the Disciples of Christ growing as well? I mean, uh, ha- ha- do you have any uh, sense on those two, or is is yeah. yours the, like the one that's growing the most right now? So definitely the Christian churches is the, is the one that's growing the most. Uh, the Disciples of Christ uh, is faring the worst, like most of the mainline traditions in right. the country. Yeah, they've all been dying for exactly. quite a while. Exactly, they've all been turning downwards. That's nothing new. Uh, the acapella churches of Christ, they had a big boom in the 60s and 70s. That's when mm. they were doing lots of debates, lots of churches were being formed, particularly in the South. But since then, they have also been trending somewhat downward. A lot of Church of Christ writers have written about why these reasons are. Well, they had become very insular, started to preach things that were very similar to kind of we are the one true church doctrine. And for that reason, conversely, is why I think the Christian churches have sprung up. Because right now in the American evangelical landscape, this 
idea of not going by a denominational name is just very popular. So I'm new to the town and I want to pick a church. Do I go to First Methodist? Do I go to First Baptist? Or do I go to Cincinnati Christian Church? Oh, well, you know, I'm not really a Baptist. I'm not really a Methodist. That sounds normal. You know, Cincinnati Christian Church. So, you know, that, that appeals to people. It has a very seeker-sensitive appeal to it. So if somebody is looking for a church and they don't want the baggage that comes with denominational labels or theology, First Christian Church sounds a lot better than First Baptist or First Methodist. People who may not have a church background tend to flock to, I said, quote-unquote, our churches or independent Christian churches which has contributed to its growth, not just in this country, but all around the world. I've been to many Christian churches in, in Mexico. I have friends who are, are missionaries at churches um, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia. It, it really has taken off. Mm-hmm. They're taking advantage of the sort of genericness of their name. <laughs> That's it's, it's like an unplanned, yeah. brilliant marketing strategy. It, it really is. I mean, it, we, we couldn't have planned it. It just happened to kind of coincide with the fact that today, nobody cares about debates between Presbyterians and the churches of Christ. In the 60s and 70s, people would fill churches to debate infant baptism between a church of Christ preacher and you know the, the Methodist preacher down the street. Nobody's doing that today. Nobody cares about that kind of a thing. And so it just kind of coincides with this present moment, theological moment where we're at, that we've been able to capitalize on. Well, we're going to have to cut off our interview here. And I've got a part two lined up for you next week. But so far, what did you think? Have you heard about this movement before? Do you have thoughts about it? Please come on over to restitutio.org. That's the word restitution with no N. Org and find episode 439, The Stone Campbell Restoration Movement with Eric Miller, and leave your thoughts there. We'd love to hear from you. Also, I'm going to be down in Jacksonville, in the Jacksonville, Florida area, next week. A number of us are getting together for dinner. So uh, I don't know when you're listening to this, but if you're listening to it sometime around April of 2022, then I welcome you to meet up with us and hang out and have a meal and meet some of the other believers in the area, you can get in touch with me through email, sean at restitutio.org, and I can link you up to where we're getting together. Also, just wanted to let you know that we've got some exciting new interviews coming up. Of course, next week we'll have part two of Eric Miller, where he really gets into the non-Trinitarian and Trinitarian history of the Church of Christ and the Restoration Movement communities, and I think you'll really enjoy that. But then I also have interviews lined up with Daniel Calcano of Canada, a pastor who has done some good work on generations and the differences between the generations and how we can reach different generations for Christ. And then also Aaron Schellenberger, who has done extensive research on the historicity of the resurrection and responding to some of Bart Ehrman's claims. Schellenberger himself studied under Mike Lycona. For those of you who know him, know that he is a very well-known Christian apologist among evangelicals, and so Schellenberger will be sharing a three-part series, really getting into the weeds of how do we know the resurrection happened, and how do we counter the objections that people bring up on this subject. So stay tuned for that. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll catch you next week, and remember, The truth has nothing to fear.